First Samuel, chapter 26, beginning in verse one, it says, now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is David not hiding in the hill of Hakila opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped. In the hill of Hakila, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his Gun under his pillow. No, spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please. Take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Now, David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord, the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son, David? David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? 
Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But but if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, and I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all Tribulation, then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son, David, you shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Have you ever struggled with temptation, with trial, with sin? Have you ever submitted to God, resisted the devil, only to find yourself in a similar circumstance? You have won one particular battle and then you experience victory only to be hounded again by the same trial, the same temptation. (laughs) I once heard a preacher say, What do you do when sin comes knocking at your door? And he said, I let Jesus go and answer the door. Most Christians realize there are three major enemies that we have. The world, the flesh, the devil. And these are hardened enemies. They are prepared to fight and they are prepared to fight Over and over again. And we're coming now to the end of Saul's life. In a few chapters, Saul will be dead. And by the way, this is the last time that we will see Saul and David together. There seems to have been a momentary peace between Saul and David after the death of the prophet Samuel. But Saul's hatred and his jealousy and his Fear erupts in a fresh outpouring of vengeance. There's a fresh thirst for David's blood. And if you look in verse one, it says, now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is David not hiding in the hill of Hakilah opposite Jeshimon? David returns to the wilderness of Ziph, and it's difficult to understand why he went back there. 
since it's such a place of reoccurring trial and reoccurring trouble. Remember, he's already spared Saul's life once. But he returns to the place where. Where all of the trouble seems to occur. Now, we all make mistakes. We all have trials. Yet there is something perverse. There is something wicked. There is something destructive when your life has been marred by alcohol or by drugs or or by reoccurring sexual temptations. The last thing in the world that you want to do is to return to a life of drunkenness or immorality, to a life of self-indulgence. You don't want to go back to the place where you're most likely to get hurt. Let me ask you a question. Why do you suppose we do self-destructive things? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, doesn't he? He says, I want to do what's right, and then I wind up doing what's wrong. Inside of me, I know the difference between right and wrong. But I feel compelled to do something that is inconsistent with my own beliefs and my own deeply held convictions. Paul writes, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Hakula is a rugged stone outcrop with many little nooks and crannies to, to hide. And David must have sensed that Saul would not remain quiet forever. And remember what we've seen as we've studied the book of 1 Samuel, that David becomes a, a type of the person who is after the spirit of God. And Samuel, excuse me, Saul is a type of the person who's after the flesh. And the flesh may give you a time out. The flesh may go, OK, I'm not going to harass you over and over and over again. And sometimes the, the flesh becomes so quiet that you think, Hey, I have victory over this particular area of my life. Hey, the flesh may remain quiet for a while, but it's only a while. You'll remember that Saul wept when David spared his life and Saul flatters and promises to never, ever, no, never, ever. Hey, I know we've had problems in the past, but this is never going to happen ever again. And then it happens again. Why? Because inside of Saul's heart is a smoldering volcano ready to erupt, ready to spew his red hot molten lava, his liquid hate and burn whatever lies in his path. And the people of Ziph rat David out. And when they tell Saul that David is in their territory, they ignite the hatred in Saul's heart and they flame the, they, they, they fan the flame of his fear into this roaring fire. And Saul does what many of us do when we're consumed by hate or fueled by fear or filled with jealousy. Saul forgets. His promises. 
Saul made a promise to God and Saul made a promise to David. Remember what Saul said? I'll leave you alone. I won't hurt you. Saul not only forgets his promises, Saul forgets his oaths. I swear I'll leave you alone. And then he forgets the wet, hot tears. He forgets the remorse. He forgets the, 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 the scene in Engedi where he was, you know, uh, inside the cave where he hikes up his robe and David cuts off a piece of the robe and Saul has the dreaded vision of what David could have done. And all he can think about, all he can think about was not the the promise that he made and, and not the oath that he made and not the hot tears that he shed. All he can think about is the hellish hatred that is inside of his heart. And once again, Saul turns with his all consuming fear and his all consuming suspicion. And he says, David has to go. David has to be eliminated. David must die because the voice is whispering in Saul's ear. So long as David is alive, your throne is always in danger. Now, remember what we've already learned, that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit is wars against the flesh and the flesh knows something. The flesh knows that the moment you seek to enthrone Jesus Christ on the throne of your life, the moment you purpose in your heart that your mind and your lips and your affections belong to Jesus, the flesh will do everything that it can to distort, pervert, ruin your ability to see God and see Jesus, David's son. And Saul has forsaken the truth and he's forsaken honor and he's forsaken courage. All because he refuses to forsake his own pride. And you know what? The flesh will make promises and make vows and cry tears. But make no mistake about it. The moment you decide to retain your pride, you make a conscientious effort to push Jesus off the throne. And once again, David's been betrayed by the Ziphites. And once again, David keeps a journal. We know his journal as Psalm 54. If you have a Bible, you might just want to turn there real quick. I don't know what kind of a Bible you may or may not have, but most Bibles have a little preview, if you will. It says in Psalm 54, a cry for deliverance to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? (laughs) So this is the little song that he wrote, his little journal that he kept for this incident. He wrote, save me, O God, by your name. 
and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Selah, which means pause and think about it. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in their in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. The sacrifice that he's talking about isn't just simply a sacrifice of praise. He's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices for wickedness and for sin, whereby blood creates a mechanism of forgiveness and reconciliation. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me out of all my trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. And I want to ask you a question. The Ziphites have betrayed him once. And now the Ziphites have betrayed him twice. Why? What would cause these people to rat David out? Is it because they hate David? I don't think so. I think that their betrayal is not so much motivated by hatred of David as it is fear of Saul. Remember, they were afraid of what Saul might do to them. If David was discovered in their land, he might go on another killing spree, a genocidal rampage. They remembered the massacre at Nob with all of the priests and all of their family. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, remember when Saul even suspected That somebody was hiding David. He not only killed that person, he killed everyone in that in that family and he killed everyone in that village. More of us are controlled by fear than we care to admit. Oswald Chambers wrote the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you don't fear anything else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Blaise Pascal noted there is a virtuous fear, which is the effect of faith and a vicious fear, which is the product of doubt and distrust. Persons of the one character fear to lose God. Those of the other character fear to find him. They're afraid. They're afraid of what might happen. And that's exactly what happens in the world in which we live. We fear human beings. We fear what our mother will think, our father, our our friends, the, the, the people in the world at large. People despise pain and fear suffering. We're motivated by the the need to be liked and accepted. And we're also motivated by the need to not be exterminated. And we think that if we honor David's son, if we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, people will despise us or make fun of us. We may fail to speak up for our family when people say mean and hurtful things about the Lord. 
We may want to keep silent on issues of the sanctity of life, the moral canker sore on the soul of America, the wicked and cruel and continued killing of innocent children, the moral canker sore of same sex marriage. We don't want to offend. We don't want to make waves. We don't want to unnecessarily hurt anybody's feelings. And so we're afraid. We're afraid to tell the truth. Because we've seen what happens to people when they tell the truth. We've seen what happens to people when they tell the truth. And they lose their job. Or they lose their wife or their husband. Like the people of Zith. Were willing to betray David. For fear of offending Saul. And it becomes a type and a picture for the Christian that sometimes we are willing to indulge, embrace and perpetuate the desires of the flesh, even if it means we're going to offend Jesus in the process. Sometimes we're willing to betray David's son, Jesus, in order to preserve the peace with Uncle Saul. I mean, Uncle Sam. What is the antidote for fear? Do you remember what it says in Second Samuel, chapter one, verse seven? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Remember what it says in first John, that perfect love casts out fear because Fear has torment. And when you have perfected love in your heart and in your mind, when you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ and you've said, you know what? I have experienced his grace and I've experienced his mercy and I've experienced his love and I've experienced his promises. And it's not like anything that this world has to offer. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. There's no cave this time. He isn't going to stumble into an ambush. As a matter of fact, Saul takes 3,000 mighty warriors with him and he creates an encampment in the form of a circle and he takes a ring of guards of concentric circles, smaller and smaller, until he has his own private guard right in the middle of the camp. And so if anyone is going to get to Saul, they have to go through this sort of chain of protection. And it says in verses three and four, and he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. David sees what's happening. Look at the expressions in the verses in chapter three and chapter four. He saw he sent he understood the reason why all of that becomes important to you. He saw, he sent, he understood. The idea is David is not ignorant of his enemy's devices. And neither should we be. Don't you want to see when the devil's coming for you? 
Don't you want to see when the enemy is after you? The Bible in the New Testament talks about the devices or the schemes or the wiles of the devil. The the New Testament talks about the way of the world. It talks about the tools of the flesh. There's a lot of different ways that your enemy wants to trip you up. Slow you down. Hurt you bad. Kill you if capable. And so what David does is he learns, he learns, he learns to trust the Lord in life's most difficult circumstances. And it's the great lesson that each and every one of us has to learn, isn't it? It's easy to trust the Lord when the Thanksgiving table has a nice, great, big turkey and cranberry and lots of dressing and your family is gathered and you have all that you could ever want and you have all that you have that you ever need. But maybe this is a year where there's a little bit less on the table or there's a a few people who aren't at the table that you wish were at the table. You see, it's easy to trust and rejoice and be thankful when when everything is going good. But what about when things are difficult? What about when things are challenging? You see, a life of intimacy and proximity to the true and living God will bring you into circumstances where your faith and your confidence will be tried. Remember what the Bible says? Those who will will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. David will trust the living God. He will have confidence in the Lord. And think for just a moment, this is what makes triumphant faith possible. You have faith when you're confident in God's plan, in God's judgment, in God's sovereignty. That's when you're least likely to be afraid. And look what it says in verse five. So David arose and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Remember, there are concentric circles of ever strengthening guards. If you get past the first layer, you're going to have to go to the second layer and the third layer. They form a a kind of a human shield. And Saul and his men are willing to sleep in the night so that they can capture David in broad daylight. And while Saul's men sleep, David and Abishai are, are awake. And they're planning to sneak into the camp of Saul. You know what I've discovered? That people of faith will sometimes forsake sleep in order to wage war against the flesh. Because often the enemy comes in the night, doesn't he? The enemy comes in the night and tests you and tempts you and provokes you in your your thinking and in your feeling. So while they're sleeping... David and Abishai are praying and planning. Do you remember what it says in the New Testament? It says, work while it's still light, because the day is coming when no one will be able to work. We live 
We love. We work. And then the night comes. It says in verse 6, Then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. Now, Abishai was David's nephew. We know that from 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but you might make a little note. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, Otsim, the sixth, David, the seventh. Now their sisters were Zariah and Abigail, and the sons of Zariah were Abishai, Joab, Ashael, three. And so David and Abishai come to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, With his gun under his pillow. Yeah, the text says, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. But everybody who has ever slept with a gun in the drawer next to them. Anyone who has ever slept with a gun under their pillow knows exactly what this text is saying. Do you know why Saul has the spear right next to his head? It's so he can fight. He's paranoid. That's what's happening. And when it says in Abner that and the people lay all around him, you have to understand something. The word camp is translated trench in the old King James and scholars have 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 again suggested that there might have been a circle of people. There might have been a circle of ox carts, but make no mistake about it. He is well fortified and Abner is the biggest and the meanest and the strongest and the most vicious fighter that you can imagine. Here's what I want you to think. I want you to combine Jet Li with Rambo, all three movies combined. And you get an idea of just how Bad of a dude. Abner is. And in verse seven, it says, so David and Abishai came to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping. And in verse eight, then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. Now, think about this. 3,000 guys. They are out. There is a supernatural presence where everybody is out like a light. And Saul's gun under his pillow, the spear right next to it. Abishai says, let me just take the spear out. I'll take it and with one firm thrust, I'll put it right through his throat and I will pin him to the ground and he'll never make a sound. And your enemy will be dead. And our troubles will be over. Abishai urges David to kill Saul. 
You know, it's been my experience that Satan will often use people, even close relatives, to urge us to do the wrong thing. Well-meaning people, people who are with us, people who risk their lives, people who love us. Jesus told his own disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus told them, I must suffer and die and rise from the dead. And when Peter hears the word suffer and die and he doesn't hear the part about rise from the dead he goes not so may it never be and you remember Jesus's words get behind me Satan because God has a plan and God has a purpose The son of David is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die for your sin and he's going to rise from the dead. And God has a plan for David. David is going to be the king. And David is going to be the king one of two ways. He's going to be the king on his terms or he's going to be the king on God's terms. And guess what? God has a plan for you. A wonderful plan. And the plan is going to be accomplished according to his will and according to his circumstances and according to his his perfections. I'm sure the disciples thought the same thing when Jesus refused to to bring down fire from heaven upon the rebellious house of Samaria. You'll remember even John, our beloved disciple, the one who wrote the gospel of John, the one who said, love one another. This is the guy who said, Lord, let's call fire down from heaven and smoke them like a, like a, a, let's smoke them like a pack of cigarettes. And Jesus goes, you have no idea what you're talking about. But you probably thought the same thing. Lord, what are you thinking? Lord, why in the world would you allow Satan, the wicked, filthy, disgusting Satan, why do you allow him to operate for one day in my life? Wouldn't wouldn't the whole world be a much nicer place if Satan were cast into the lake of fire like right now? Lord, what's the hold up? Lake of fire, toast his cookies. Hey, you know what? God's plan is to throw that stinking devil into that burning lake of fire. But there's some unfinished business. God has a plan and a purpose. And part of the plan and the purpose is to... Present the gospel to people who need to have a right relationship with God. You see, there was a time when you weren't saved. There was a time when in wickedness and disobedience, you were an enemy of God who rightly deserved to be punished by God. But rather than be punished by God, God sends his son Jesus to love you and die for you and rise from the dead and forgive you. So that your future could change. David resists the temptation. In verse 9 it says, But David said to Abishai, Do not 
destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Here's what David understands. God made Saul king. God will have to remove him as king. It won't be me. Now, make no mistake about it. If David killed Saul, it is true Saul would lose his life. But David is going to set a dangerous precedent, isn't he? Because if one person becomes king by you killing the king, you're going to invite chaos. And there's not going to be any real transition of power, if you will. Saul, if David kills Saul, Saul is going to lose his life. But David is going to lose something way more important. His innocence and his integrity. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Is David a perfect person? No. Has he made some terrible mistakes already? Yes. David is certainly not completely innocent. He's not free from sin and guilt. But in this particular instance, David is faultless and blameless. When it comes to Saul, David is the Lord's anointed. And David seizing the throne by killing Saul is going to set a dangerous precedent for the transition of power. David killing Saul would have challenged the authority and the order that God ordained and brought reproach on the God of Israel. Philip Keller writes in his biography of David, quote, yet the marvel of it all was that the spirit of God was sufficiently active in David's spirit to spare him from spilling Saul's blood. Somehow David, tough and formidable, a warrior as he was, <clears throat> allowed his conscience, his emotions and bodily reflexes to be controlled by the power of the Almighty. Despite the subtle suggestions of his fighting comrades, he simply wouldn't succumb to their insistence that it was God's will for him to take Saul's life. And that's what Satan will often do. He'll whisper in your ear. It's God's will. You know it's God's will for you to go in that direction or to have that thing or to be that thing or to do that thing. If it wasn't God's will, why would God have allowed you to meet that particular person? Have that particular friendship. Do that particular thing. Look at the circumstances. David, if ever, look at the supernatural circumstances. We've gone through several series of guards. Everyone is supernaturally... Ever there was a time to kill him, now is the time. God is supernaturally at work. And Saul will die. But it won't be by David's hand. And you see, that's one of the key concepts. God is at work. You have to believe that. Some of you do. But some of you don't. It's still hard for you to comprehend that God is at work in your life, that God is at work in your relationship, that God is at work in your marriage, that God is at work when you are at work, that God is at work. He is molding and shaping and directing the things that are in your life. God is at work. And look what it says. 
The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand, verse 11, against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. You should underline that. God had ordained the circumstances. And God had quite clearly delivered Saul, but David did not sin. I want you to just think for just a moment. David did not have the license or the liberty to disobey the heart of God, the character of God, or the will of God. David didn't have the freedom to avenge himself of all the wrongs that Saul committed against him. That was going to be God's job. And the Lord would make this thing right. And that becomes one of the underlying things that we've seen both in this chapter and in the last chapter. If you don't believe anything else I'm saying, believe this. God will settle the scores in your life. God will settle the scores. Somebody hurt you? God will settle the score. Somebody abused you? God will settle the score. Somebody done you wrong? Learn to play the guitar and become a country western singer. No, God will settle the score. God has the responsibility of doing exactly that. Do you understand what the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to tell his readers? Number one, God is supernaturally at work. Saul's efforts were thwarted, not by the cunning of David or the conniving of David. The, the, the will of Saul is thwarted by the supernatural effort of a God who has a plan in place. And the plan in place is to make David the king. We sometimes live our lives in such a way that we think we made it on our own. I went to school and I got this job and I have this house and and whatever skills or circumstances that I have, I did this on my own. You couldn't be further from the truth. God has always been at work in your life. It's the Lord God who gave you the ability to work and to live and to love and to respond. We sometimes live our lives in such a way that we think it doesn't matter if we read our Bible. It doesn't matter if we pray. It doesn't matter. God will still show up and God will still help us out. Well, does that mean that we stop praying? No. Does that mean that our failures somehow overwhelm the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God? I'm here to tell you that your failure won't overwhelm the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. The grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God can overwhelm your foolishness and your sinfulness and your selfishness. So am I encouraging encouraging you to be foolish and sinful and selfish? No. What I'm encouraging you to do that no matter how deep the disobedience 
God is willing to make it right. I just need to remind you very quickly to go back to verse 10. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his days shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. Saul is a short timer. And he's a short timer on God's terms. God will deliver Saul to death. God will get Saul. Saul will either die by the hand of God. Saul's number will come up. Saul will die in battle. It's a powerful and a prophetic statement. David will be guilty of many things. But David will not be king by his own hand. Do you really want God's will for your life? Do you want God's grace for your life? And do you want God's mercy for for your life? Then do God's will God's way. Remember, many Christians settle scores just like the people in the world. Many Christians in their mind and with their mouth say, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get even with you. I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to make him pay. I'm going to make her pay. Do you want to even the score with your enemy? Do you want to hurt the person who hurt you? How do you plan to make that happen? Make no mistake about it. God is in control. He's your father. He's your shield. He's your protector. You know, we as Christians should make every effort to resolve disputes. We need to be able to live so far as it's possible at peace with all people. We are instructed to take the loss. We are instructed to suffer wrong. We are instructed to refuse to injure others. Even if it means harm for ourselves. Look, the Bible gives you permission to duck when somebody swings on you. Yeah, you have permission to walk away. Sometimes you even need to run away. David refuses to raise his hand to the king. If David refuses to raise his hand to the king, then you should refuse to to raise your voice. Or to raise your hand to the people of God and to the people who've been entrusted to your care. Don't raise your voice and don't raise your hand to your wife. Don't raise your voice. Don't raise your hand to your husband. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your voice to your employer. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your voice to the elected officials. Saul has shed many tears. Saul has made promises. Saul has has said that he would do certain things and he hasn't changed. He didn't change in his heart. He didn't change in his mind. He didn't change in his actions. How else do you explain that he's in the wilderness trying to hunt David down and kill him? But David has changed. Look what it says in verse 13. Now, David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? It's his way of saying. Abner, 
You are a wimp. Abner, you're a coward. You're a wimp. You're a girly man. Now, look, when you call like the meanest guy in the whole camp a girly man, it's not a good thing. David will take the king's spear and he'll take the cruise of water, what we might call the king's water bottle. Earlier in first Samuel, David has Goliath's sword. Now he has Saul's spear. This is the same spear that Saul used to pry and play, pin the psalmist to the wall with. This spear is useless. Do you know why it's useless? Because the Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. I want you to think for just a moment. The spear becomes a type and a symbol of Saul's hatred for David. And in the palace of the king, the king held a spear. And in the palace of the king, the man who would be king holds a harp. One of them holds a harp. One of them holds a fear, a spear. One holds the instrument of worship and one holds the instrument of fear. But the spear is useless. Saul used the same spear to try and kill his own son, Jonathan. Saul threw the spear at Jonathan, not because Saul hated Jonathan, but because Jonathan loved David. And so that spear represents not simply Saul's hatred, but also Saul's authority and power. And had Abishai had his way, he would have plunged that spear and killed that king. But David will return the king's spear. Because the truth is, God will give to each person and God will place in each person's hand what is due to that person. But you'll notice that David keeps the king's water bottle. I like that. One Bible writer writes, and I quote, the man, according to the flesh, may retain the power But only the man of faith knows spiritual refreshment and satisfaction. He keeps the water. And he drinks. Because he will be refreshed in the wilderness. I like that. It says. In verse 15. So David said to Abner, are you not a girly man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord, the king. I'm going to continue reading. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise or the jug of water that was in his hand. Saul is awakened when David taunts Abner and David accuses the strongest man in all of Israel of being a wimp. And Abner should have been more careful guarding the king. And Abner is the strong man in Israel. He is the mighty man. He is the king's personal bodyguard. But Abner has no power to protect and defend against the destroyer. 
And you see, the truth is people may surround themselves with a series of people or circumstances, but make no mistake about it. God is sovereign and God is in control and God will do exactly what needs to be done. He's worthy of death for such neglect. But the grace of David has spared Saul's life. And this is key. David becomes Saul's benefactor. And in verse 16 and 17, it says, Then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son, David? Of course he, he recognizes the voice. He's listened to David's hit parade for years. David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. Do you understand what he's saying? If I've hurt you or if you've hurt me, why don't we take this to the Lord? Do you understand what he's doing? He's actually a Appealing to Saul to get right with God. Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. And then in the middle of the verse, it says, but it, if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. In other words, because of this circumstance, I have been not able to go to the temple. I've not been able to serve the Lord. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Here's the idea. Saul recognizes David's voice. David sings to him. The sweet psalmist of Israel chased away the demons that had tortured Saul's soul. Always David's speech was graceful, note that, and respectful to the king. And then David does something special. He pleads with the king to abandon his sin, return to the Lord. If God has led you to pursue me because of some sin in my life, he's saying, I'm going to offer a sacrifice with you in order to settle this matter. That is, let us together settle this matter before the Lord. That's what he's saying. But if men are cursing me, then you can be sure that God will settle the matter for me. Now, earlier in the book of Samuel, David suggested to Saul that Saul had been listening to lies, the evil plotting of men. Now, David says to Saul, hey, have I sinned against you? Have I sinned against you or even the Lord? Let us offer a sacrifice. In other words, let there be a provision when people transgress the blood of the sacrifice, this becomes a key concept for you as a Christian. If you as a Christian don't believe in sin, if you don't believe in forgiveness, if you don't believe in repentance, if you don't believe in the sacrifice of Jesus as being the mechanism whereby we can forgive one another and be reconciled to one another, then you will always have an incomplete Christianity. 
Because make no mistake about it, people who live in intimacy and proximity almost invariably will hurt each other. Centuries later, David's son would plead with another Saul from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the needle like jabs that stick in your conscience? In the New Testament, that Saul is exposed. Who are you? I'm Jesus, David's son. Saul is exposed. All Israel knows that David is right. And David, for the second time, has the opportunity to kill Saul and he refuses to end his life. And David meant Saul no harm and he proved it and he proved it over and over again. He proved David. Listen carefully. David proves that he is a man of his word. And Saul proves that he is not a man of his word. The simple lesson. Your flesh will lie to you. Jesus will tell you the truth. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Your flesh will lie to you. Jesus will tell you the truth. Then look what it says. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Returned my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I played the fool and erred exceedingly. Doesn't it sound just like a TV evangelist? I have sinned. I will harm you no more. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. Note, he doesn't say let Abner come over and get it. You know, it's one thing to call a guy a wimp when you're like a good mile away. But I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, this is David's way of saying, see me the way God sees me. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? The next time you get into a really good fight with somebody you love, look at them and say, see me the way that God sees me. He says, I have sinned. This is not the first time we will hear words like this from a political or a religious leader. Does Saul really believe he sinned? Maybe in this sense, Saul believes that he has sinned, but is this is the more important question. Is he willing to turn from his sin? Is this the truth or is this Saul's wounded pride speaking? We say it ourselves and sometimes our confession rings hollow. I played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. I've had a critical lapse in judgment. All of Saul's confession is true. But he still refuses to repent. Saul is sorry. But is Saul's sorrow 
going to undo the years of persecution and pain? Is Saul's sorrow going to mean that the massacred village is going to come back to life? Can Saul undo the tears and the pain and the horror? I'm going to suggest to you that Saul's conscience has squeezed a confession out of his mouth. Have you ever heard the expression? You can't get blood out of a turnip. You can't get water out of a rock. I knew a guy who could squeeze a penny so hard he could make Mr. Lincoln cry. You could just see the tear form right on his eyelid. Saul's conscience has been brought low by David's character. David is suspicious, and he should be, of Saul's sudden conversion. If Saul is truly repentant, what might David expect from Saul's behavior? I'm going to give you a little clue right here. Saul doesn't, David doesn't trust Saul's words. David trusts the Lord. Now, this is important. David trusts the Lord, not the changing moods of this schizophrenic sovereign. Because if repentance means anything, it has to mean I'm willing to stop what I'm doing and I'm willing to go in a different direction. Confession is good, but confession alone is not repentance. Repentance must never be confused with sorrow. Worldly sorrow can lead to separation from God and death. Sorrow that leads to self-destructive behavior or the destruction of others isn't godly repentance. And I've used this illustration over and over with you that Herod was sorry that he made the deal with his dancing daughter-in-law. He was sorry that when he said, what is it that you want? And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He was sorry that he made the deal, but then he killed John the Baptist. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. And then he went and he killed himself. Sorrow that leads to hurting yourself and sorrow that leads to hurting someone else is not repentance. Repentance is willing to reflect on personal sin and repentance is willing to recognize divine wrath and repentance relies on the Holy Spirit's conviction and the power to turn from sin. Repentance that is godly reveals and results in a spiritual transformation. Repentance that is real will resist the devil and then will remain inside of the believer's heart. Repentance that is real will rejoice in the truth. And one of the ways that you would know it is if he cries out to God, if he prays with David, if he cries out to him and, and turns from his wickedness. Paul writes about it in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse eight. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrow, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world. World produces death and in Saul's life, the rest of his life, the net result is going to be death. 
Saul doesn't do it God's way. Instead of he had ran ahead of the Lord instead of waiting for the Lord. Chapter 13. Saul didn't learn the lesson that partial obedience is disobedience in chapter 15. Saul doesn't obey completely. Saul turns his back on his godly friends, Samuel and David. Saul will later seek guidance from satanic sources in chapter 28. When Samuel is dead and he is dead, Saul seeks Samuel's guidance through the wicked witch of Endor. Saul refuses to repent, even when he knows he's wrong. But before you're too carried away, the real question you should ask yourself is, are you running ahead of the Lord? Are you failing to completely obey the Lord? Have you turned your back on godly relationships? Are you seeking solace from satanic sources? Are you willing or unwilling to turn from your sin? Even when you know you're wrong. Do you say, I'm sorry. And then refuse to change. David gives back the king's spear. Because David knows that the spear can't harm him. Apart from the knowledge of God and the will of God. And this is exactly what David means when he speaks in the next few verses. Saul doesn't trust the Lord. He doesn't cry out to God for forgiveness. Saul doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't beg God to forgive him. He doesn't beg God to change his wicked, evil, selfish Fearful heart. Saul doesn't ask David to pray with him or for him. Saul simply blesses David. Vindicating David. Justifying David's behavior. Condemning his own behavior. Saul blesses David because his conduct in the past. And he predicts a a glorious future for David. But he's not going to change. Saul was given every opportunity to do what's right. And I have to pause and warn you. You've been given every opportunity to do what's right. You've been given every opportunity to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior, to trust the Lord. You've been given every opportunity. He... Saul was instructed by Samuel the prophet in truth and godliness and righteousness. Saul was generously endowed with natural abilities and supernatural anointing. God prepared and anointed Saul to be the king. Saul partook of the presence of the Lord's Holy Spirit. Saul was never truly born again. Saul rejected God. Saul rejected God's Holy Spirit. Saul rejected the fact that his gifts and callings were from God. Saul became embittered and embattled and angry and jealous and fearful and he hardened his heart against God and man and he failed to see the evil in his own heart Philip Keller again writes Saul never saw the evil of his way and the sin of his soul he never saw that these were crimes against God and himself he never saw with spiritual understanding the stubbornness of his will, the disobedience of his spirit, the selfishness of his motives, how they were offensive to God. Not only against men, but an awful affront to the love of God. 
God worked overtime to change Saul. And God gave him chance after chance after chance to change. Saul, God gave Saul a loyal and loving prophet to be his friend, a love and loyal son to be his companion who told him about God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And then David reminds Saul that there's a sacrifice for sin, that the shedding of blood could create a mechanism where people who are at odds with one another can be reconciled. But Saul won't do it. He won't change. He's committed to his own selfish agenda. God won't trust him. And neither will David. I want you to think carefully. Are you willing to trust the Lord? And are you willing to trust David's son? He's given you every single opportunity. Make sure you take advantage of it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you. Lord, we pray that you wouldn't allow us to leave this place empty handed or empty hearted. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't build one more layer upon our heart and continue to walk in rebellion and disobedience. Lord, we pray that we would turn from our sin. And that we would turn to the Savior. That we would embrace the blood that was shed for us in the person of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, we would be unwilling to do your will other than your way. Lord, we pray that we would never make partial obedience. Total obedience in the sense that we fool ourselves into thinking that if I do it at least halfway right, I'll be okay. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to go all the way. To love you fully, to submit to you fully, to to confess our sin fully, to walk away from it completely. And to run into your arms. And allow your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness to define our life. In Jesus name. Amen.